News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. And tomorrow is Remembrance Day, of course, and there are, as always, a number of ceremonies to take part in. In Vancouver, there's the big one that's at Victory Square, starts at 10.30 in the morning. In Richmond, they're hosting a parade and ceremony starting at 10.20. That's going to be happening on the east side of Richmond City Hall. If you're out in Surrey, there are a few ceremonies to choose from, actually. One at the Crescent Legion, one at the Surrey Centre Cemetery, one at Veterans Square in Cloverdale, one at Wally at the Legion that they have there. Uh, You've got ceremonies happening in a few locations in Langley as well. Douglas Park, Fort Langley, Murrayville. I think there's actually one or two more there too. But I mean, Delta has two, Burnaby, Coquitlam, Port Moody, Maple Ridge. I mean, you should have no problem finding a ceremony in your community to take part in. And I think the reason why people do, I mean, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, you want to make sure that, you know, you remember uh, the people who sacrificed. You also maybe want to remember the family connection you have to Remembrance Day because everyone has been impacted by this in some way or another. If there is a personal connection, maybe that's a story that your family has talked about or you have heard while you were growing up. So we make the effort to, of course, remember them on this day. And these are the kinds of questions that Canadian stage and screen actor R.H. Thompson is exploring in his new book. It's called By the Ghost Light, where he takes a deep dive into the lives of his eight uncles who served in the First and Second World Wars. He wanted to try to better understand just how far-reaching the impact of war has been. So our producer, Bianca Rego, decided to also find out what inspired him to write about his own personal story and share it with the world. The stories that we, we have in our families that we tell about wars, a lot of war in my family, I lost seven great uncles in World War One. So it's kind of like, how do you remember a war in a family? in a province, in a country, in a world. As families tell the stories of war, or Canada tells the stories of war, to whose purpose do those stories serve, and how should we listen to the stories of what's being told? So, because I lost seven great uncles in World War I, and four of them were brothers from one family. And their little sister, way back in the 1920s, she collected all the 700 letters that her four brothers who had died, She collected them all, and it became a memory vehicle. So years ago, I did a play called The Lost Boys, and everyone who came back to my dressing room afterwards, they told me their stories. That was the trigger when I realized everyone had these really vibrant and sometimes very profound stories in their families. Therefore, you've got to talk about it all. If you're going to remember a war or if you're going to do Remembrance Day, you've got to talk about everyone, and that's your family and each family of all the people who are listening to this program. Can you yep. tell me some of the stories that you learned about your uncles uh, who did participate in World War I and World War II? In the book, I, I imagine myself in a the theater, and the theater's dark, and I imagine they're all sitting around in the wings, and sometimes they walk on stage and say, okay, I'm going to talk now. Um, and then I tell some of the stories, like uh, George, is, George was my great-uncle. He was killed at Passchendaele. And the family lore is, yeah, George was killed instantly at Passchendaele. A shell came over and killed him instantly. And when you start digging into the history, much later, you realize he wasn't killed instantly. It was a pretty messy death. 
and it had various stages to it. And I ha- I found an account of a driver that said, yeah, I was told to come out. They dug him out alive. He'd been buried. Uh, I was told to put him over my shoulder and take him to the dressing station, which was 10 or 15 minutes away. So I walked for 10 or 15 minutes with the guy over my shoulder, who was my great uncle, uh, who was probably bleeding internally and conscious or unconscious. And the account says, yeah, when I got to the dressing station, uh, I took him in and the doctor said, no, throw him out the back, put him on the pile. He's dead. So that's the detail of the story of a death in war that I think is worth thinking about. Because when you wrap it up and say it cleanly, well, he was killed instantly. Good. Close the book. Chapter's cleaned up. Move on to the next commercial. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. It's messy. And if you open up the mess, you start to see the humanity of it. And... In this instance, I was doing a documentary back in Belgium, and I was working on a project which I called The Gold Remembers. And I said, okay, let's, let's actually find out where he was hit. And with the help of some Belgian researchers, I found the exact spot in Belgium where he was buried. Then I knew where the dressing station was in a concrete pillbox. So I, took a, I said to a friend, I'm going to carry you. So I thought I will reenact George's last 10 or 15 minutes. So I put my friend on my shoulder, and I walked that walk on which more than 100 years ago, my great uncle died. And for me, that's how you remember. I don't think you remember in abstract and lounge and we all line up very nicely and honorably and we remember them. I don't think we remember them anymore. I think we remember them by name. Why do you think it is so important that these stories are told and that we're able to ruminate on them together? Because I think that's who we are as a country. I think that's one of the great positive energies of what Canada has set out to do. We're about the only country in the world who said, you know, eventually we are going to be a plurality of minorities. There's going to be no majority anymore. It's going to be every community is here. And I think there's a huge strength in that. So by remembering and saying, okay, we're not going to exclude anyone's story, I find that idea energizing. Because we're in a big experiment, not experiment, journey, to reconcile with First Nations peoples. And that's so important. You know, it's not until every one of those graves that they're finding around those residential schools, it's not until each of the children buried there are named and brought into the public record, then we'll have grown as a country and we'll be able to move on. So that's why I pursue the world remembers. And um, it's crazy, but I think it's worth doing. Tell me more about your project, The World Remembers. The World Remembers is a crazed idea that sort of came out of the play that I was telling you about and the reaction with my own great uncle's death and all the rest of it, in that we are everybody now. Everybody lives in Canada, every community. So are you going to do November the 11th in the image that we were, that Canada was in 1919-1920, which thought of itself as a very white country and we were very British? No. That's not who we are now. We're a very different nation. We're a nation of all peoples. Therefore, you should remember as all peoples. Therefore, I said, let's take a war and let's name everyone. And we set out to name everyone from both sides. So you go into the detail and you say, let's really look at the details. So the world remembers now. The database that we've built up of all the names so far from 23 countries is four and a quarter million names of those killed in World War I. And anyone can go and look for their name. So it's a way of saying to everyone in Canada, you are all included in this commemoration exhibit. 
How were you able to compile all of these names and find all of their stories? One crazed step at a time. I thought uh, when I started the project in 2012, 2013, I thought there's no way this is going to work. It's probably got a 30% chance of working. But you kind of chip away at it, and then you get one country, and then two countries. And we, we did an event in Trafalgar Square, and the Queen came and opened it. And the moment she came, then other countries went, oh, well, who's this Canadian actor guy? He was doing this weird project. Oh, the Queen came to one of his projects, and they paid more attention to me. So I would go to Moscow, I would go to Serbia, I would go to Belgium, I would go to Rome, saying to each of the countries, look, why don't we make a communal memory of this one war? We've all got to be part of it. So we're kind of halfway through. We have 23 countries. We're showing at the Canadian War Museum. As I say, there's a website. People can contact us. People can donate on the website. But you can also go, okay, I'm going to go look up my family name and see if you're there. They can go look. And we've involved them in remembrance. And that's what I think we've got to do as a country. So that's what I'm doing. Is it easy? No. Is it mad? Yes. But so far, we're still doing it. So. This is Mornings with Simi. On this Friday morning, it is time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. All right, let's talk about this Green Party thing, because in both cases, we're going to talk about the NDP and the Green Party. It is, what did you know and when did you know it? We'll start with Sonia Firstenau. Yeah, so Sonia Firstenau of the Greens has a regular media availability at the legislature on what's going on this week, and she had one yesterday. And... Oh, the Greens, you know, they're very policy oriented and so is First to Know. So she gave us a little briefing on what the Greens have had to say on issues like LNG and healthcare and all that. And then she took questions. And of course, all the questions, the pesky news media were only interested in one story, which is the decision on her part to accept the resignation and or oust Dr. Gandhi as the deputy leader of the Greens over a totally inappropriate link on social media where he liked the posting of somebody who compared Dr. Bonnie Henry to Joseph Mengele, the Nazi war criminal. So what about it? Um, First and all, tried to put the best face on what she did. She said she acted within an hour of the posting being drawn to her attention. And by the way, Simi, I don't know if you were aware of this, The posting was drawn to her attention by our colleague, Rob Shaw, uh, who sent it to First and O for a comment and waited to see what her response was, and her response was correct. Uh, She cut her ties to Dr. Gandhi. So on that one, uh, First and O says, look, it was totally inappropriate what he did, and I acted right away and dealt with it, so, you know, can we move on? Except we can't. No. <laughs> so there's still some issues. I mean, the first question is, it. this comes up every time someone is done in by one of these idiotic, stupid, reckless, careless social media postings is how much vetting was done because you always know that, you know, supposedly political parties ask people who want to run for them or become their deputy leader, give us access to your social media accounts so we can go out and find this stuff before the news media does or before our opponents does. So the question, first and all, was there are some other postings by Dr. Gandhi that are also questionable. How much vetting did you do? I was surprised at first and all's answer. She said, talk to the party. They do the vetting. Well, Okay, they vet their candidates, and he was running as a candidate against Adrian Dix, but 
Andrew Weaver, who's no fan of Sonia Furstenau, the former leader of the Green Party, points out that the deputy leader of the party, which is the title that Dr. Gandhi had, that's chosen by the leader of the party. And the leader of the party is accountable for that choice. So I think it's a valid question. And we didn't get a very good answer from Furstenau. How much vetting did she personally do or make sure was done before she named him her deputy leader. I think there's an outstanding question about First and judgment there, and I don't think she handled the answer very well. Yeah, because you know the thing is, there were lots of questions about uh, some yeah. of his online behavior, and that's been happening for months. Yeah. So, did she was she completely unaware of this beforehand? Uh, she really didn't address it. She just said, "Talk to the party." And the other thing, of course, Richard Zussman raised this issue in the thing was. Some of Furstenau's own comments on this issue are also questionable. For example, Furstenau accused Dr. Bonnie Henry of gaslighting British Columbians. I mean, that's a, a level of deceit that you're accusing the chief provincial health officer of. Uh, you better be able to back it up. So Richard asked her that question, and her answer wasn't very good on that either. She said... Well, you know, as an uh, um, opposition party uh, leader, I'm s- expected my job is to hold the government to account. Well, and so I jumped in and said, yeah, but do you think Dr. Bonnie Henry is gaslighting British Columbians? That's what you said. And she said, well, no, she doesn't think that. So, you know, uh, first you know, maybe right. She dealt with this very quickly. That's true. And, uh, you know, in the political realm, a leader who stops the storyline on the spot in the first hour uh, has a much better chance of surviving it than the kind of leader we have where they twist in the wind, practice denial for days, and finally come around and admit it. Uh, The case uh, example being what's going on with Doug Ford in Ontario, where he's still admired in the green uh, scandal, the Greenway scandal uh, about all the agricultural land that he was trying to take out develop housing on. So, you know, I do agree with the basic point that First Inno says of you move on and uh, the Greens, she hopes, will be accountable for their policies, not for how she handled this one. Exactly. Okay, so that is one issue there, but they still they still haven't fully answered that because I know the BC Conservatives also went after Dr. Henry yesterday too, didn't they? <laughs> so we had a double header against Dr. Henry yesterday. Uh, as soon as you're finished with First and O, uh, we rush out to the back steps of the legislature where the other um, party in the legislature, the fourth party in the legislature, the BC Conservatives are holding a rally They're calling for Dr. Henry's head as well, but from a different part of the political spectrum. They think she should be fired uh, because she required healthcare workers to get vaccinated. And we had a variety of, uh, you know, a former nurse and a naturopath doctor and other medical people stand up and say, this is awful. They can't do their job. They can't practice. Uh, They don't clearly from their comments, they don't have much faith in vaccines and they want uh, Dr. Henry fired. So, you know, we don't often get this kind of teachable moment in British Columbia where you get back-to-back press conferences on the issue. But, you know, I think a lot of us went that um, on some issues, Simi, it's a mistake to think of the political spectrum as a line that goes from left to right. In some cases, it's a circle. 
-hmm. where the extremes meet in the middle or at the bottom or wherever you want to imagine it, uh, the Greens and the, the Green comments uh, and the Conservative comments uh, both going after Dr. Henry, although Sonia Furstenau said the comparison is not a fair one because the Greens have never questioned the efficacy of vaccines. That's true, but they have questioned Dr. Henry's judgment on other matters. All right, we're back with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun, and we're still talking this week about what the government knew and when they knew it when it came to concerns about safe supply. Yeah, this is a serious story, a serious scandal, I think, that the government's having to deal with. So on October the 24th, Premier David Eby cut the government's ties with the Drug User Liberation Front. They were on a $200,000 contract in connection with the safe supply of drugs. And Eby said he was cutting the tie because the Drug User Liberation Front had been buying drugs on the black market having them vetted for safety at two of the province's universities and then selling them to members of a compassion club off a storefront on the downtown east side. E.B. said it was unfortunate that he had to do it, but he said they were breaking the law. This is the premier's word, and he's a former attorney general. They were breaking the law, and we can't stand for that. And the other thing E.B. asked was that British Columbians should note that he dealt with this as soon as he knew about it, as soon as the government knew about it. Okay, that's the storyline on October the 24th. The problem David Eby and the New Democrats have is that transcripts of a legislature committee way back in June 2022, so what, a year and a half ago, show that the committee was informed about this practice of buying drugs on the black market and flipping them around and providing them a safe supply. The committee heard testimony to that effect way back in June 2022. And we know this because of an excellent bit of reporting by Fran Yanner of the Northern Beat. So what did the government know? Well, collectively, the government knew 18 months ago that this was going on. And what did they do about it? They didn't do anything about it until the opposition brought it to their attention um, in October. So it's a serious issue, led to a lively but unproductive exchange in question period yesterday between the current Attorney General, Nikki Sharma, and former Attorney General Mike DeYoung, who is a BC United member for Abbotsford. I'm so interested in this because you wonder what was going on behind the scenes. Like, did they never say anything to the people at Dolph or did they talk to them? Like, there obviously must have been some kind of communication there. The Attorney General, Sharma, must have more knowledge about it than we do because she was chair of that legislature committee. Well, yeah. She sat there and heard the testimony that this was going on, but she absolutely refuses to engage on this issue. She turned around and accused the opposition of shameful behavior for making an issue of this, scoring cheap political points when lives are at risk because of problems with the safe supply. And DeYoung comes back and says, well, I've been around here a long time, but I've never heard an attorney general suggest that it's shameful for the opposition to be asking about criminal behavior, criminal behavior that the government admits is criminal, right? So it was a, I mean, it was an important exchange because 
holding the government to account is a job of the opposition. It's also an important exchange because the premier did not give the whole picture on October the 24th when he said the government acted on this as soon as it knew about it because some members of the government, including presumably the attorney general, if she was listening back in June and while, during her committee meeting, knew this had been going on for a long time. Yeah, and this isn't a, a small thing. I mean, they were taking these drugs. Also, I have questions about the universities at labs that they were taking these okay. drugs too. Like, what were they thinking? Yeah, look, there's a whole matter here that we knew and we didn't know. I mean, there's some evidence that we knew this had been going on for a while and we were looking the other way collectively because because the opposition was on that committee too. We were looking the other way collectively because you've got to get safe supply into the hands of people and the only way to do it is to buy drugs on the dark web. Uh, that's the cover story for what was going on. But you make a very good point. The universities were vetting these drugs and presumably, did they know these were illegal drugs well, and that's yeah. why they were being asked to vet them? I mean, it's a matter that needs some kind of independent review here that goes, what did we know? When did we know it? Why did we do it? What did we do about it? And why did it take until October 24th for the premier to step in and put a stop to it and that happened only after the opposition, Eleanor Sturko, made an issue of this in the House and the government couldn't ignore the illicit black market trade in safe supply any longer. And these purchases were cocaine, heroin, methamphetamines. From what I know and what the committee was told, Simi, there's only one way to get that stuff. You go to the black market and you buy it from criminals. So, you know, this is a this has compromised, in my view, the entire reputation of what's going on with safe supply. And for the attorney general to say it's shameful to bring it up and even ask about it when she knew about it 18 months uh, ago, yeah. that's not an acceptable answer. It is not. All right. Well, thank you for that, Vaughn. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot that went on in the United States this past week that we are going to talk about now with the help of Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Now, if if you would indulge me for a moment, I would like to start with the Republican presidential debate. All right. Only because it's so rare that Canada makes headlines out of a presidential debate. Sure. Uh, and this was uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, a, a businessman who's running to try and be president of the United States, essentially trying to court some votes in uh, from Republicans in states like New Hampshire, ultimately trying to say, look, the, the amount of fentanyl that's coming across the United States uh, into the United States from Canada um, is, is an egregious amount. And we need to build a wall that's going to run from end to end. Things that he didn't mention, Simi, the cost. I mean, it was 15 yeah. billion dollars for 1100 <laughs> miles of wall at Mexico. There's 8,800 uh, miles of wall when it comes to Canada. This is a way to try and just invoke fear into some people in the United States. At the end of the day, this is this is a non-starter. And at the end of the day, 
this is one of the lowest priorities of anybody who is running for president. I, I was just so curious because I know that we had a good laugh about it on this side of the border, but I am curious about how it played south of the border. Well, I mean, look, the border talk, I mean, it, it didn't really play at all. Uh, and that's, you know, it, it's funny because so much of the debate was about foreign policy. And, and yes, the, the border between Canada and the U.S. is a matter of foreign policy. But it, you know, what was going on, what's going on in the Middle East, what's happening in Ukraine, even the matter of abortion, even though it was further down, those were the big talking points. There was a group that that kind of latched onto this. There's a northern border security caucus made up of far right members of the of the Republican Party. They latched on and said, look, this is something that needs to be discussed. But the 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 administration and the kind of general appetite for, you know, 8800 miles of wall into Canada is is simply just not there. (laughs) No kidding. All right. Let's talk about the Democratic side of things. It was it was an election week. Right. As we know, always that first Tuesday in November is an election week. And even though this was an off year, not a presidential cycle year, still lots of important races that happen and surprises there, Reggie. Yeah, big surprises. And it's important to say not a presidential year because it means that the tickets that are being voted on don't have the big names at the top, you know, whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden or whoever the candidates happen to be or the nominees happen to be. But there were big kind of flips and upsets, particularly in Virginia, where Democrats had been poised to keep control of one and they were trying to flip control of the other. They ultimately grabbed control of the entire state legislature in Virginia. There is now a a Republican governor with a fully Democratic-held um, state legislature, and that's going to make things difficult, but it could be a bit of a precursor here or a foreshadowing to what happens next year, because at the same time that Virginia really went blue in Kentucky, a ruby, ruby red state, um, Andy Bashir, the Democratic governor of that state, won re-election pretty handily here and actually picked up votes in some of the most conservative counties in the state. So the question is, can Democrats seize that momentum heading into 2024? or or when there is a president at the top of the ticket, maybe that's Joe Biden, does that work against Democrats as people start to tick down the ballot? That was a big blow for Glenn Youngkin, though, wasn't it? The the governor there in Virginia, because they thought, oh, he, he might be a presidential contender. Sure, there was conversation that he might actually throw his hat into the ring, um, you know, in the next couple of months and try to take on what is is still Donald Trump's race to lose. But given the fact that he, um, you know, his party lost in Virginia, he has no control anymore. And some of the policies policies that he wanted in Virginia that he was trying to kind of get some national taste on, um, none of that's going to happen. And it really does, you know, bring into question here is that kind of style of Republicanism that is still semi linked to Donald Trump, is it still as effective as it once was two, four, six years ago? Okay, and what are they chalking up the unexpected wins to? Like Democrats obviously even did better than what the Democrats were expecting. So what do they chalk that up to? Uh, To be honest, a lot of it has to do with the fact that Joe Biden wasn't on the top of the ticket. Uh, You know, Joe Biden is is still popular sort of within the party, but there are concerns about his age. There are concerns um, about his his mental acuity. Um, And without him being on the ticket, it allowed for people that are running in the state to simply run on Democratic policy, not run under what the White House is ultimately trying to get done for the country. And these these became elections about state and local issues. And we saw in Virginia, it worked. We saw in uh, Kentucky, it worked. We even saw in Ohio, another, you know, pretty red state uh, enshrining abortion into its constitution, again, going against what Republicans are trying to do. So again, it's a question for Republicans to look at to say, what are we doing wrong here? Our playbook obviously needs to be updated. Okay, and so we wanted to talk about a few other things that have been going on here as well. Uh, What was the deal with these fentanyl laced envelopes? 
Yeah, I mean, look, this is this is a big deal, and the Department of Justice uh, is involved, the FBI uh, is involved, and these envelopes were sent to election offices in a number of different states, including Washington and California uh, and and Georgia. And actually, in Georgia this morning, we found out that Narcan is now being um, handed out to all employees of election offices around the state. Uh, it's unclear where these originated from. There, there's no kind of um, understanding as to who may have sent them. Some of the letters had um, symbols on them that that can be affiliated with, you know, far left politics, but oftentimes that can be used by, um, you know, somebody on the far right who's using it as a message or to try and, you know, pigeonhole or target right. somebody on the left. But at the end of the day, um, you know, this, this is a concern uh, and it, it kind of draws back what we've seen over the last number of years where election workers have found themselves the target because of, you know, one party or another complaining about election fraud. Okay, and I wanted to ask you about this brothel. One, because, you know, you never get to talk about this kind of stuff. And two, I watch a lot of Law & Order SVU, and they're, they're always busting some high-end brothel that politicians go to. And now it sounds like this actually happened in real life. It did happen in real life, and it happened a stone's throw away from Washington, D.C., and that's important because we've heard from the Justice Department that many of the clients of this high-end brothel were politicians, though they're not giving a list of who those clients were. But this is three people arrested, two from Massachusetts, one from California, for operating these brothels in the Northeast and in Virginia. Uh, clients are, are politicians, our elected members, our doctors, our lawyers, are any kind of laundry list of people. Um, you know, and the concern is, number one, this is sex trafficking. And, and the second concern is this is illegal activity that's taking place in, in residential buildings here. So it raises that question, knock on your door, who is it that's, 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 that's living in the unit next to you? Because it could be yeah. an illegal operation. Wow, that story is crazy. Oh, and speaking of crazy, let's talk about what was going on in New York this week, Trump trial. Uh, and this was a big deal because there was testimony from uh, Ivanka Trump. From Ivanka Trump and then last week from his other two kids, uh, Eric and, and Don Jr. And ultimately what this is, is to determine whether or not Donald Trump and, and Trump the Trump organization is going to lose its ability to continue to operate in New York. The state attorney general is seeking to disbar the company. She wants to fine them $250 million. The judge has already found them liable for fraud when it came to overvaluation and undervaluation of assets and properties. Ivanka tried to distance herself from her father in the financial statements. So too did the kids. The Trump team gets its chance on the on the kind of stage next week. This will be wrapped up by the end of December. And if the judge finds that the Trump organization did something wrong, this could be the real end of, of that Trump legacy in New York. Wow. OK. And there was a little trouble controlling the client in the courtroom, too, wasn't there this week? Yeah, controlling the client and, and controlling the, the lawyers. I mean, the lawyers were, were kind of um, chastised for, for going on and asking bad questions. But Trump himself was told to stop making his answers into political campaign style speeches. Uh, and, and the judge actually had to tell the lawyers to control their client uh, because this was just a one day event and he wanted to get things done. There's no jury in this trial. It's just the judge that's making the ultimate decision here. And for Trump to just kind of run his mouth, um, wow. that, that can work against him because he's not trying to convince a panel. He's just trying to convince one judge. I'm not sure he fully realizes that yet, but maybe he's <laughs> playing to the audience that's outside waiting for him, too. Uh, it, Veggie, thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Do you have a will? Well, not as many people have one as you would think. Actually, fewer than 50% of Canadians, according to uh, this online estate planning platform called Willful, they partnered with Angus Reid to survey Canadians, and that was the number that they found. Now, November is Make a Will Month. I know, the pressure this time of year, you got a lot going on, and now you should also thinking about be thinking about this too. Now, Aaron Burry joins us now, the CEO and co-founder of Willful. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Sammy. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. You're stressing me out a little bit, giving me anxiety, making sure that my will is up to date. (laughs) Well, listen, if you have a will already, then some of that stress should be reduced. But this is not about stress, especially because I think we all have a misconception that creating a will is expensive. It's super time consuming. So hopefully I can bust some of those myths today. Okay. And I know I want to talk about this survey that you did because I know you focused on parents, like people who have children age 17 or younger. And to me, those are the people who really, really have a will. Yeah, it's interesting. You would think so. I mean, we found over the years, uh, since we launched six years ago, the main catalyst for creating a will is having a child. I mean, I'm a mom of two, and that's definitely when I created my will. And then when I had my second daughter, when I updated it. But we actually found 52% of parents do not have a will. Over half of Canadian adults in general don't have a will. So, you know, that's really why we're, we did this survey is to kind of put the word out for Make a Will Month that this is really important. This is a document that outlines who gets your stuff, who takes care of any dependents, whether that's children or pets, and that ultimately puts you in the driver's seat when uh, when something happens. So, right, Why uh, don't people do it, though? Why don't people do it? Great question. I mean, the survey found three main things. Number one, we don't have time. And listen, as a, a mom of a two-month-old, That's I true. totally get that. Yes. Um, and number two reason was uh, lawyers are expensive. And number three reason is it's intimidating to visit a professional like a lawyer or a notary who can draft a will in British Columbia. Uh, but I think that's really the message that we're trying to get out. You can absolutely spend thousands of dollars on getting your will in place, but you can also use new online tools like Willful to get it done for as little as $99. Uh, and it usually only takes about 15, 20 minutes to sit down and actually do your will. It's really just three core decisions. Who's your executor? Who are your beneficiaries that are going to get your stuff? Who's going to take care of any minor children or pets? Okay, you're making it sound very simple, though. But when you think about your stuff, that's a lot of stuff. It is, but you don't have to itemize it. I mean, I think that's the misconception is you have to create a list of all of your stuff. In reality, you're just saying generally, okay, I'd like my husband to get everything or I'd like, you know, 50% to go to each of my siblings. You really are just giving these overall percentages and leaving any specific gifts that mean a lot to you. For example, I might leave my guitar to my sister because I know she's really musical, but you don't have to itemize everything. That's something that your executor is going to do when you pass away. So it's not as time-consuming from that perspective as you might think. So what you're saying is the job that you really want to dodge is being the executor of someone's will. Well, it's a big responsibility. <laughs> it's a huge so responsibility. When you're, when you're, exactly. When you're creating your will, you probably want to run it by that person, right? Um, you know, it's very common to appoint a spouse or a sibling, an adult child, a parent to be your executor, but you want to run it by them because it is a big job. It's very time consuming and not everybody is as organized as they should be when it comes time to be an executor. Is it possible then to do what you just said there, like to keep it as simple as possible? 
Well, that's the thing. I mean, we created Willful to essentially be like the TurboTax for wills. It guides you through the process. You don't have to know anything about estate planning to get started. And listen, as you age, as you get more complexity in your life, you might upgrade to a lawyer-drafted will or a notary-drafted will that is more time-consuming, that is more comprehensive and expensive. But this is something you can start with, right? And you can get it done this month for in 10 to 15 minutes for you know very little cost and have something in place so that if the unexpected does happen, I mean, listen, we all want to live to be 100, but if we don't, we know we at least have a document in place so we're not ending up like Aretha Franklin and Prince and Chadwick Boseman and all of these other celebrities we read about in the news who have passed away without a will in place. Yeah, I know it gets messy. I guess the problem here, Aaron, too, is that people, they don't want to think about leaving. You know, they don't want to think about dying. Exactly. I think no one wants to think about their own mortality. And I get that. But this is really a gift that you give your family. My husband and I started Willful because we had a family member pass away who hadn't discussed any of their end of life wishes. And we felt really paralyzed. And we felt like we weren't making decisions that honored them because we didn't know if they were the right ones or things that they would have wanted. So ultimately, it's just like life insurance. You never benefit from your life insurance. It's your family who benefits. A will is the same. It's a gift that you give your family. It cuts down on time cost and, uh, you know, headaches when the time comes. All right, Aaron, thank you so much for that this morning. Thanks, Simi. Appreciate that. Aaron Burry is the CEO and co-founder of Willful. November is Make a Will Month. And all I could say is that if you're going to ask somebody to be the executor of your will, do what Aaron said and talk to them first, because that is a huge job that you are handing over to someone. I mean, you're going to be gone, uh, but it's going to be a big deal for them. So make sure you talk to them about that first. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, it is already so hard for so many British Columbians to find a family doctor and build that relationship. Even if you have a family doctor, you might struggle sometimes to talk about some of the issues that are impacting you. I mean, it's even harder if you face further obstacles. Maybe you've got health challenges. Maybe there are some things that you're kind of embarrassed to talk about. It's pretty challenging out there. Well, that's where a new medical center is stepping in. They call it a pioneering healthcare model. The co-founder, Dr. Veronica Lee is with us now, actually. Dr. Lee is a registered clinical counselor and co-founder of Come As You Are Healthcare Center. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. What is the goal with this clinic, with the Come As You Are Healthcare Center? Yeah, Kayak, C-A-Y-A. We are a multidisciplinary medical and allied health clinic. And the goal here is really to provide healthcare that is safe, welcoming, and non-judgmental. Um, as you described earlier, sometimes seeking healthcare can be embarrassing. It can feel really intimidating, and we're trying to do things a little bit different. Um, for In us, what way? we yeah we uh, uh, are focused on serving all women, trans, and non-binary folks. And the reason why is because oftentimes this population is neglected in healthcare. Um, about three years ago, uh, we started this idea, and uh, one of the stories that sticks out to me is uh, for me, I work in sexual health. And a client was sharing with me that um, they had to go to multiple places to get their health care needs met. And when they went to their doctor, their doctor actually told them to have a glass of wine to deal with their sexual pain. And really? Yes. Hearing the story uh, was really what sparked. Why is this the type of health care that's OK? And it's not. That sounds like and a menopause so- issue. That sounds like somebody with cause <laughs> a lot of a lot of women I know of my age, they talk about this, but they find that they either have trouble talking about it with their doctors or even doctors these days. They need to brush up on on the new and kind of latest thinking on this. 
Absolutely. And so um, coming back to your question of how we stand out is we've curated a, a group of skilled professionals who are passionate about women's health care and working in trans care. And we hope that your experience here is one that is welcoming and safe. Um, in addition to that, uh, we really want you to feel heard. Uh, so many times people's, uh, like we're talking about people's experiences, dismissal and neglect. And like I mentioned, that's just not okay. Yeah. So then how do you, I mean, it's challenging enough these days to open a clinic. First of all, you're going to have to be inundated with people who want to come to the clinic. How do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think for us, we really wanted to provide not only medical care, but allied health services because healthcare is complex. Um, there are things that our, our doctors um, are, that, that's their areas of expertise, but we also have mental health counselors, dietitians, pelvic floor physiotherapists, and RMTs to really provide that well-rounded service. And so when you come to see us, we'll do an, an initial uh, assessment, um, but also really wanting to pair you with the right person. Right. Some of the other interesting things that we were talking about menopause here and women of that age, like what were you finding, though, is that women don't want they don't want to talk about it. They do want to talk about it. It's impacting them even in the workplace. Yes, uh, I think it's a little bit of a combination of both that they may want to talk about it, but they don't know who to talk to. Or when they have talked about it historically, they haven't been heard. Um, if we were to zoom out for a second, if you have a, have a health concern and you go to uh, your healthcare provider and they aren't listening to you, what is your likelihood of going to return to that service? Very unlikely, right? And so then what happens is people avoid seeking healthcare. Um, you know, they might even start, you know, questioning their healthcare themselves. Like, is this all in my head? Um, which can be really dangerous because um, when left untreated, these things can, can be life-threatening. That's so true. It can be life-threatening. So how do you get them to open up and talk? Because you're talking about people who faced obstacles in the past when it comes to healthcare. So how do you get them to open up? Yeah, I, I think first, you know, when, when I think, when you think about a traditional medical setting, we might think like, you know, stark white walls, um, kind of a sterile environment. And we're trying to do things different where, um, you know, our, our space is very homey. And I think it really starts there to try to, you know, make people feel comfortable right off the bat. Uh, we are also trauma-informed, and what that means is we give people choice. We let them know that they share what they're comfortable sharing, and that might mean taking a few more visits to feel comfortable with their health provider, and that's something that we can offer. Okay, so how soon can you be set up? How soon can people come and see you? For our primary care doctors, they can be seen actually within two weeks. Um, and that's part of our model, too, is accessibility. Wait and a minute, our, our Dr. Other... Lee, how are you managing this? I mean, come on. Everybody has trouble finding a doctor. How are you managing this? Yeah, and so part of uh, what we're offering is, you know, our, we do have a full family practice, but we do have a part of our, our physician's caseloads that are for episodic care for people that we're describing who have historically have a hard time finding family doctors um, and the, the list of services we have, it's, uh, like I said, we direct them to the appropriate healthcare provider. Many people are seeking primary care also for mental health reasons um, because they don't know where else to go. And so that's where we try to direct them to our clinical counselors or if it's for nutrition support, they go to our dietitians. Um, and so okay. again, we, we really come from that team approach. Yeah. Okay. I'm intrigued by this then because this, is this the future of healthcare? Do you think in, in the end, could this cut down on the need for people to perhaps go to the emergency room or perhaps engage less with the healthcare system because they're being looked after differently? 
We hope so. We might be, uh, we've been told that we are the first, but we don't want to be alone. We hope this type of healthcare becomes the norm where uh, people really feel listened to and heard. Um, and we know from the research that when people seek psychological care, that is actually less burdensome on the medical health system. Okay, so yeah, I think lots of people would like to see more of this. Uh, Dr. Lee, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. That's Dr. Veronica Lee, who's a registered clinical counselor and the co-founder of this new clinic. It's called the Come As You Are Healthcare Center, Kaya, C-A-Y-A. And that team approach is one that's really interesting because you think, well, I'd love to go to a clinic like that too, right? Like they're obviously focusing on certain groups there. They have specialties that they want to really help people with. Uh, But overall, this is the approach that uh, you'd love to go to a clinic like this, right? One that they they deal with you with all of your problems here. If you needed a nutritionist, you needed a dietitian or counselor, they they can refer you. Oh, here, that's in the office. You go over here. We're going to connect you with this person here. It's kind of a one-stop shop for all of those things. And yeah, I think when you do that, you do kind of cut down on the repetition in the healthcare system, people lining up at the emergency room for something that maybe a clinic like this could handle. Uh, It is a fascinating model. This is Mornings with Simi. In our name, our name that news quiz that we were just doing here, one of the questions that we had was about Air Canada and the promises that they are making in light of their total and complete failure in dealing with some passengers who require disability assistance. Like you've heard the stories, they've been generating headlines. I mean, one of the people that they actually failed was the person who is in in the chief disability officer for the Canadian government. That was Stephanie Cadieu, former BC cabinet minister. So we've heard these awful stories about the way passengers are being treated. And so this week, Air Canada said, no, 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 we hear you. We get it. Uh, They are addressing this issue. They've issued a formal apology. They outlined some comprehensive internal changes to improve their treatment of passengers with disabilities. Things like updating its boarding process. So passengers requesting lift assistance will be boarded first and seated proactively at the front of their booked cabin. All right. That sounds good. Although I a little surprised that they weren't doing this already. Uh, they are going to revise their storage procedures for mobility aids by storing them in the aircraft cabin whenever possible. Sure. Again, why weren't you doing this kind of stuff already? Uh, create a new tracking system to be implemented to confirm the presence of the aids on the plane before takeoff. I'm tired of saying this again, but why weren't they doing this already? Implement an annual training program, uh, establish a new senior position within the company to ensure the effective rollout of the plan. All of these things that you wish they had been doing already. Our next guest also wishes they were doing these things already because he had a terrible experience with them. Ryan Lachance is with us now, a local stand-up comedian. Ryan, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, Ryan, what happened when you flew Air Canada? Uh, I've been dropped twice in two flights in a row. First in 20, uh, 2022 in November when I was flying up to Penticton to do some shows. And then once again when I was flying back from the Halifax Comedy Festival at the beginning of May this year. Uh, both times I was dropped on the ground and... Both times they had equipment available to help me get off the ground, but they insisted on doing it themselves. Oh, so. right. That is awful. Now, I know you have cerebral palsy. You need, a, you need a motorized wheelchair. They could have used better equipment. How did you feel when they were doing this? 
I felt like a human piece of cargo, if that makes any sense. Because I didn't feel, uh, I felt like I wasn't being heard. Um, especially in May when my caregiver and I both insisted all throughout the trip in Halifax, in Toronto, and in Vancouver that they use the Eagle Lift and uh, our voices weren't heard because they ended up using the Eagle Lift but after dropping me on the ground and uh, picking me back up and putting me in the uh, seat for the airplane while they went and got the lift. When, uh, and after that, it only took about 12 to 15 minutes to, to get me off the plane. But the whole ordeal took over an hour and, hour and a half. Oh, man. So if they just used the Eagle Lift in the beginning, like you said. So, Ryan, I know that all of a sudden now this is in the headlines, which is a good thing, getting attention. But has it been difficult for you to get Air Canada to respond before now? Yeah, they just kept telling me they were looking into my file. And that's all I was getting. But once I hit the news, they they started speeding things up. I I've yet to receive a, a formal apology from them, so I don't know if I ever will. It doesn't really matter at this point because all I wanted to, them to do was change their practices, and hopefully they're going to stick to it. But yeah. as you were saying in the opening, they should have done all this stuff before. Like, the technology's been around for a long time, so I don't know why it's taken uh, myself and the gentleman in Prince George to have to go through what we went through for this to all happen, not to mention how many wheelchairs they've broken over the years and things like that. Like, I'm a personal friend of Stephanie Cato, so when she went through her incident and filed the report and then found out if I... And what I went through, she contacted me right away, and she's like, you filed a report, right? And I was like, of course, 100% they did. So we'll see what happens. I mean, right now it's a lot of words, and I was raised, actions speak louder than words. So let's see if they actually put their money where their mouth is. Yeah, let's see. So you are, we'll count you skeptical on this one, Ryan. Yeah, definitely. Would you fly Air Canada again? If I had to, <laughs> but if I have a choice, probably not. But, I mean, they're one of Canada's uh, major carrier uh, airlines, and I have to travel the country for work, so I might not have a choice. Well, listen, let us know if anything goes wrong again, because we're not going to make, we're going to make sure this time Air Canada pays attention. Ryan, thanks for telling us your story. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Anytime. That is Ryan Lachance, who's a local stand-up comedian. Obviously, he has to travel for work. He's had some horrible, horrible experiences, as you heard there, on a couple of flights with Air Canada, where they didn't use the equipment that they have, didn't want to wait for it, and they thought they would do it themselves. And, of course, poor Ryan ends up being, you know, kind of handled incorrectly on the ground. And then eventually they do use the Eagle Lift, which they could have used in the, to begin with uh, if they had just waited for it or called for it. Like just horrible, horrible treatment. Like Air Canada, they better uh, change as a result of these stories being in the news because I feel like uh, people like Ryan have really given them too many opportunities, too many chances already. And uh, now they kind of deserve this bad publicity. So let's see what happens as a result of that. Now, if you have a story that you would like to share as well, please do. Simi at CKNW. Dot com.